What's going on, food eaters? Welcome to the Food Labels Revealed podcast, a tiny little radio program that brings you incomparable information about the world of processed foods, wherever they're found. I'm your host, Mel Weinstein, the self-described, self-effacing, self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 69. For today, I present a FLR retrospective and an important announcement about the show. This episode comes at the end of 2021, so I thought I'd put together a retrospective taken from the first 20 shows of the podcast. Why a retrospective? In 68 shows over four years, I've talked about numerous topics related to processed foods. If you're like me, when I start listening to a new podcast, I rarely, if ever, search out the oldest episodes to listen to. I usually just start the podcast and move ahead. But, you know, there could be some really interesting content from the beginning of a podcast term. So, for this episode, I've gathered together clips that I think are interesting and educational and may be worth a second listen to in case you have already heard the original. I hope you agree. But first, I've got an important announcement. I've started work on my first Food Labels Revealed book. It's tentatively entitled Fast Food Ingredients Revealed. Several years ago, I started to address this question. Do menu items in fast food restaurants have the same ingredients as highly processed foods in groceries, box stores, and convenient marts? I devoted several episodes to that question and ultimately concluded the answer was a definite yes. Unfortunately, fast food restaurants are not legally required to reveal the ingredients in their foods, so the average consumer doesn't really know what's in those foods. So, my book takes a deep dive into that issue, not only revealing the hundreds of fast food additives used to prepare fast foods, but also provides profiles of those additives, touching on some history, health, and many interesting tidbits of information. Also, using a scoring system, I rank fast foods in terms of their degree of industrialization, so consumers can compare one food item against another. I hope to publish the book in the next six months, either conventionally, that is through a publishing house, or by means of self-publishing. Now here's an appeal to my audience. If any listeners know of an experienced literary agent, please contact me at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Let's get on with the retrospective. You may notice that the sound and editing quality of the early episodes wasn't quite up to snuff, but I was just getting my feet wet with podcasting and I really didn't know what I was doing. So I I hope that the audio quality doesn't grate on your nerves too much. From episode number three, I introduced the topic of grass additives, a subject I think that every informed citizen should know about. But before I get to these food items, I want to talk about grass because it pertains to just about every commercial food that I will be investigating. Grass. No, I'm not talking about lawn care or your favorite recreational drug. Grass is a federally defined acronym which stands for generally recognized as safe. Generally recognized as safe. G-R-A-S. Grass. Now, this is a big subject but I'll try to break it down into niblets. Let's start with the year 1958. The Eisenhower administration decides that it's time for the government to start regulating chemicals used by food manufacturers. Up until that time, food manufacturers could put pretty much what they wanted in commercial foods without any kind of justification of their safety. So Eisenhower's people got a law passed called the Food Additives Amendment 
that requires food manufacturers to scientifically justify that the chemicals being used in their foods are safe for human consumption. But here's the problem. There were a shitload of chemicals used for hundreds of years, and it would have required a ton of work and money to test every one of them. So a compromise was struck. Pull up your chair, turn up your audio device, and listen carefully. The lawmakers decided that if a chemical had been used in the food supply up until 1958, with no one getting sick or keeling over dead, then that chemical would get exempted from the law and automatically become grass. Well, that probably covered a few handfuls of chemicals, right? No. About 700 chemicals were grandfathered in, for example, chemicals like caffeine, caramel, and clay. Two of those I'll be talking about in this program. So right from the get-go, there were about 700 chemicals that didn't have to be scientifically scrutinized for their safety. What about new chemicals that the food industry comes up with as food additives? Well, the food manufacturer is tasked with the job of scientifically testing the new chemical for its safety in a particular food at a particular concentration. But here's the kicker. The manufacturer is in complete control of that confirmation process. The manufacturer can, can conduct the test itself using its own scientists or can hire a consulting firm to run the tests or the consulting firm can hire a testing lab. In any event, the test results are really in the hands of the food company. Then they file a petition with the FDA, including their test results, to get approval for use of the additives. Here's the second kicker. The FDA does not run its own tests to confirm the results. If the FDA scientists agree with the test results submitted by the food company, then the FDA announces its approval of the chemical additive and the conditions of its use in food. The public has 60 days to object to the FDA's decision, after which time food makers can use the new additive. And here's a third kicker. Intelligent comment on a petition is often difficult because neither the FDA nor the manufacturer is likely to allow a potential critic to examine the petition or the scientific data. Now, once a chemical makes it onto the grass list, can it get kicked off? Sure. If enough evidence emerges to challenge the safety of a chemical, then the FDA can delist it, and that's the end of its use in foods. A good example of that is the case of sodium cyclamate. This chemical is 50 times sweeter than table sugar. Its sweetness was accidentally discovered by a graduate student at the University of Illinois in 1937. The, the DuPont company purchased a patent for it and then eventually sold it to Abbott Laboratories. Abbott created a very popular tabletop, tabletop sachet containing sodium cyclamate as an alternative zero-calorie sweetener. In 1966, some studies indicated that sodium cyclamate broke down in the body to form a toxic substance that increased the risk of bladder cancer. In 1969, the government removed the grass designation from sodium cyclamate and banned its use in general purpose foods. Okay, so let's summarize this grass stuff. Currently, there is somewhere around 10,000 chemicals listed as grass for use in foods. Yes, you heard me right, 10,000. It's tough to find out exactly how many there are, and it's even tougher to find an actual list of them. I challenge you to try. Even though the grass designation suggests that the food additive is safe, a consumer is wise to question the validity of that designation because, one, over 700 chemicals prior to the grass law of 1958 did not require testing. Two, there is no government oversight on the scientific determination of the safety of a food additive since the government does not conduct its own tests. And three, it is difficult for citizens or other interested parties to get their hands on the scientific studies submitted by manufacturing companies requesting the FDA approval and therefore can't challenge the results of the safety tests. 
From episode number five, I talk about nutrition facts labels, another essential topic for anybody eating commercial foods, which, of course, is the vast majority of the American population. Now I'm going to get a little serious and talk about the advent of nutritional labeling in the U.S. Anybody about 22 years or younger probably takes for granted the nutrition facts label that appears on almost all processed food packages. But for those of us who are considerably older than 22, we know that those labels didn't always exist. Up to the late 1960s, food packages didn't say much about nutrient content. From the early 40s to the mid-60s, some information about sodium content or total calories was seen on some food labels. But the Food and Drug Administration, a.k.a. the FDA, considered those foods for special dietary uses. Some food companies maybe volunteered that information, or the FDA required nutrient labeling if a food company made specific health claims, such as each serving contains 25% of a daily supply of fiber. However, in the 70s and 80s, there was mounting evidence based on scientific research that consumers may not be getting sufficient nutrients from the growing consumption of ready-to-eat processed foods or that consumers may be eating foods that were loaded with unhealthy ingredients. In the late 80s, the Surgeon General and the National Research Council published the relationship between diet and the major causes of death among Americans, namely heart disease, cancer, stroke, and diabetes. The government institutions started talking about how reducing the consumption of fat, cholesterol, and salt, and increasing the consumption of complex carbs and fiber could help reduce the cases of those deadly diseases. Because of the growing relationship between food, nutrients, and health, food manufacturers became very interested interested in touting the nutrient benefits of their products by using undefined claims on their product labels, such as extremely low and saturated fat. The flagrant use of health claims on food labels and in advertising got the concerned attention of government officials. So, in 1990, in the public interest, the federal government passed the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act, which authorized the FDA to require nutrition labeling of most foods. Strange, there's no cutesy acronym for this law. Nobody calls it Enlia or something like that. Additionally, the FDA established guidelines for food companies to follow when making health claims on package labels. It took several years for the guidelines to get implemented as provisions were being written. The provisions covering health claims were implemented in January of 1993, and technical amendments were published in August of that year. The final law, with all the regulations covering nutrition labeling, became effective in May 1994, four years after the legislature passed the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act. And so was born the Nutrition Facts label that has become so ubiquitous in our local supermarkets and convenience stores. As with many federal laws, there were exemptions. Of course, the major exemption was for restaurants they did not have to comply with the standards. Other exemptions included the following. Small businesses, defined by certain gross sales or number of full-time employees. Places that serve food for immediate consumption, like schools, airlines, bakeries, and delis. Foods prepared at retail establishments that were not sold outside the establishment. Foods that contained insignificant amounts of nutrients, like coffee. Infant formula, which was subject to another law called the Infant Formula Act. Medical foods, bulk foods, raw foods, like fruits and vegetables. Foods with very small labels like gum wrappers. But the information had to be available to the consumer upon request. Finally, there were certain nutrients that didn't need to be listed for foods sold for infants under two years of age. 
Even with these limitations, the government did a pretty good job requiring food companies to inform us about the levels of nutrients in their products. The law wasn't perfect, and it required uh, appeasements to food companies, but it definitely provided information to consumers that was not available before or was in scant supply. I can't say this very often, but kudos to the U.S. government for pulling that one off. I don't imagine that the food manufacturers were all too thrilled about it. From episode number 13, I evaluate Kraft's Lunchables, what I consider the poster child for industrialized food, which sadly targets children. The subject of today's podcast, Kraft's Lunchables, has been on my mind since the beginning of this series. There's probably no other processed food in the marketplace that better represents what happened to the American diet in the last half century. That's why the title of this episode is The Poster Child for Processed Food. This description is particularly significant since this product is aimed at kids and a generation of kids that is facing the increasing probability of developing devastating diseases like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and cancer at unusually younger ages, plus the rise of obesity that's a precursor to those diseases. More about that later. Let's get into a little history. How did Lunchables come into existence? Much of the info presented here is coming from two sources, Wikipedia and the book by Michael Moss called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Back in the 80s, the Oscar Mayer company, known for its processed red meats, was suffering a severe decline in sales due to a national campaign against high fat and salt consumption. Do I hear a jiggle? Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer Ah, that brings back memories. Oscar Mayer was losing market share for their bologna, salami, hot dogs, and other products, which were loaded with salt and fat. I remember those days when food companies were scrambling to reduce fat content or come up with what they called fat replacers. The company I worked for spent millions of dollars developing a starch-based fat replacer ingredient. By the time the product was manufactured and marketed, the fat scare was over and the company ate a big loss and discontinued the product. In the mid-80s, the vice president of Oscar Mayer, whose name was Bob Drain, came up with a clever idea to sell more bologna and other red meats. Drain discovered that parents' primary concern was time. Working mothers and single mothers especially were pressed by the time constraints of fixing breakfast for their families as well as packing something for their children to eat at school. This gave Drain the idea of creating a convenient pre-packaged lunch in a box featuring Oscar Mayer's trademark red meat. He came up with the concept of self-contained, individualized, compact, portable, ready-to-use, fun, and cool food. Design of the package was based on the Japanese concept of a bento box along with the look of an American TV dinner. There was a sandwich, snack, and drink in the lunchbox. Crackers were substituted for bread because they could last longer in grocery coolers. The cheese was provided by Kraft when Oscar Mayer merged with Kraft in 1988 after the launch of Lunchables. That year, Lunchables became an instant hit with $217 million in sales in the first 12 months. But Oscar Mayer lost money on the product. In fact, $20 million in the first year. The tray sold for as low as $1.29, and the more they sold, the more money Kraft lost. What was going on there? The problem was production costs. As a brand new type of product, Oscar Mayer was unfamiliar with efficient ways of manufacturing a food kit. Drain had to buy time with an infusion of cash for his enterprise, so he pitched the Lunchables concept to the Philip Morris Company. Yes, the big tobacco guys, who just happened to own Kraft Foods at the time. The execs at Philip Morris agreed to back it. It worked. By 1991, after the manufacturing process was tweaked, the Lunchables line broke even. In the next year, 
Oscar Mayer earned $8 million. By 1995, 100 million pounds of trays were sold with half a billion dollars in revenue and $36 million in profit. The Lunchable team started by using Kool-Aid and cola, but switched to Capri Sun in 2000, when Philip Morris added that drink to its stable of brands. Along the way, Oscar Mayer did try to make their lunch boxes healthier by substituting fresh ingredients like carrots and reducing fat content but the profits suffered. In defense of Lunchables, Jean Cowden, a craft spokeswoman, said the following, This is not some big corporate plot to fatten up kids. This is what kids want. There are very few kids out there who will eat rice cakes and tofu. End quote. The Lunchable teams would delve into adolescent psychology to discover that it wasn't the food in the trays that excited the kids. It was the fun, the cool, and most of all, the feeling of power it brought to their lives. So, what's the picture for the Lunchable lines today? Well, first of all, in writing up this piece, I found that my word processor recognizes the word Lunchables when the L is capitalized. That means that Lunchables is now part of the American lexicon. Who'd a thunk? If you go to Lunchables website, which is lunchables.com, you'll see all the 48 mind-boggling varieties of these so-called meals in a box. They are spread across six general categories. There's Lunchables with drink, Lunchables with 100% juice, there's only four choices there, Lunchables without drink, Lunchables uploaded with drink, in this case uploaded means extra items and therefore extra cost, then there's Lunchables snacks, And finally, Lunchables uploaded snacks. Where do you start with so many choices? Of course, most grocery stores don't carry the full line. The novelty of these products is in the combination of items in the box. Oscar Mayer throws in all kinds of snacks, desserts, drinks, many of which are well-recognized brands like Hershey, Capri Sun, Reese's, Fruit Roll-Ups, and so on. Of course, the profits will be greater if Oscar Mayer used products from its mother company, Kraft, whenever possible. Not having first-hand experience with Lunchables, I went to my local grocery store to see what they had in stock. I located the Lunchables in the refrigerated section of the store, right next to the lunch meats, of course. Out of the 48 possible varieties, I saw maybe 12. There were the regular kits for $2.99 each, plus there were several uploaded varieties for $3.49. Many of them had cute names for the items in the trays that would catch kids' eyes, such as pizza kebabbles, chicken dunks, chicken poppers, cracker stackers, fruit by the foot, cookie dunks, dirt cake, and my favorite, beef walking taco. Naturally, I gravitated to to the worst choice, so I selected Lunchables Uploaded ultimate deep dish pizza with pepperoni. The box contains eight individual items, and here they are. A 10-ounce bottle of spring water, a packet of pizza sauce, a bag containing deep dish pizza crust, a packet of pepperoni, a packet of Kraft cheese blend, a bag of Cheez-Its, a packet of fruit roll-ups, and eight, a packet of tropical punch Kool-Aid. Except for the cardboard box that holds everything, all the packaging does not appear to be recyclable and the box doesn't say anything about that. Here are the instructions for use. Quote, no need to heat. Spread sauce on crust. Add toppings. Enjoy. Or alternatively, the pizza can be heated for 20 seconds in a microwave oven. Next, peel the fruit roll from the cellophane backing before eating, end quote. For some reason, no directions are given for making the Kool-Aid drink, but I guess that's supposed to be common knowledge among kids. So the cost of this item was $3.49. The food weight was 4.7 ounces. So what are the ingredients in this box? First of all, they're listed on a side panel in very small print according to each type of item. I can usually read normal print without a problem, but I had to get my reading glasses out to decipher this ingredient list. Just think how it would how difficult it would be for parents to check out the ingredients if they, if they even had a compunction to do so. 
I sat down and typed out all the ingredients into my word processor. It took a bit of time. That's because there is a whopping, whopping 131 total ingredients in that 4.7 ounces of food. To me, it's quite a technological feat that Oscar Mayer and its associated companies could pack so many components in such a small amount of food. Could you imagine doing that in your kitchen? Grabbing a zillion boxes off your shelves to make lunch? Now, if I subtract the vitamin and water ingredients from the list, the total number decreases to 112. Then, if I remove all of the replicates, that is those items that show up more than once, the total decreases to 83 unique ingredients. That's still a mind blower. The most common ingredients were preservatives, which showed up eight times, sugar substances showed up uh, eight times, and salt was on the label six times. It's interesting to note that you would find it very difficult to find the Lunchables ingredient list for this product online. The Lunchables website doesn't even say a word about ingredients lists. Makes you wonder. From episode number 14, I have some fun with the subject of gum, which I've been preoccupied with ever since I could chew. Okay, first off, when did people start chewing gum? Let me tell you, it's a very old practice among peoples from all over the world going way back in history. Chewing gum in many forms has existed since the Neolithic period. Archaeologists have found 6,000-year-old chewing gum made from birch bark tar with original tooth imprints in Finland. People just like to chew things. Think tobacco, stevia leaves, coca leaves, and so on. It seems that wherever a gummy, sticky, gooey substance leaked from a tree, somebody tried to chew it or masticate it. That's the fancy word for chewing. The tree goo may or may not have tasted good, but the chewing, stimulated mouth juices, helped clean teeth, may have been antiseptic, and maybe provided some breath-freshening benefits. Here are some examples of ancient gum chewing. The Greeks were known for chewing mastic gum, which came from the mastic tree growing on the island of Chios. Mastic has antibacterial properties and can be used to treat gastrointestinal problems. In fact, you can buy the powder online as an herbal remedy. The Aztecs in Mexico used chicle, a natural tree gum, to make a base for chewing gum. Much later, in the early 1900s, a British company used it to make a product called Chicklets. We'll see later that there's a connection between chicle gum and the ruthless Mexican general and multi-time Mexican president, Santa Ana, whose army killed Davy Crockett and many others at the Alamo. The Native American Indians also had a chewing gum made from the sap of spruce trees. Doesn't that sound good? But it, it became the source of the first American-made chewing gum. In 1848, John Curtis developed and sold the first commercial chewing gum called the State of Maine Pure Spruce Gum. As expected, it wasn't a big seller. Eventually, it got replaced in 1860 by paraffin wax, which was made from petroleum. Based on the paraffin wax, William Semple filed an early patent on chewing gum on December 28, 1869. People used to dip the wax in powdered sugar to maintain the taste over a period of time. That sounds kind of strange, but if you're in my age bracket, you might remember the wax lips that were very popular in the 1960s and later. They served two purposes. They got you a good laugh, and when you got tired of that, you could pop them in your mouth and chew the wax until your jaws got cramps. The first flavored chewing gum was also invented in the 1860s. A balsam tree in Central and South America was known for a flavorful resin called talu, or tolu, I'm not sure how that's said. The natives used it for medicinal purposes to relieve coughs and asthma and to treat wounds. Naturally, 
It was a brownish, sticky, semi, semi-solid mass, but it could be turned into a powder. A fellow by the name of John Colgan, a Louisville pharmacist, mixed the resin with powdered sugar and made a chewing gum that he called Taffy Talu. All right, let's return to Chickle in General Santa Ana. In 1869, the general, then 74 years old, was exiled in the United States and living on Staten Island. He had brought some chickle with him, which he gave to an American aide by the name of Thomas Adams. Santa Ana thought he could make some money selling chickle as a rubber replacement for carriage tires. That never happened. But Thomas Adams put the roughly one ton of chickle to another purpose. He invented chiclet gum and established the Adams New York Chewing Gum Company in 1871, which later became part of a company called Cadbury Adams, the maker of chiclets. From episode number 17, I explore ice cream, revealing way more than you probably want to know about the subject. Let's continue. Historically, ice cream, in some form or another, has been with us a long time. According to the author Charles Panati in his book, Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, a type of ice milk was made in China about 4,000 years ago. Farm animals had begun to be milked, and the liquid food was a prized commodity. The nobility, of course, it's often the wealthy that get first dibs, dined on a cold, soft paste made from overcooked rice, spices, and milk, which was packed in snow to solidify it. In modern terms, that dish was more of a sherbet than an ice cream. By the 13th century in China, a variety of frozen desserts were being sold on the streets of Peking. Knowledge of these frozen desserts were brought to Europe by Marco Polo and a Tuscan confectioner by the name of Bernardo Buontalente. Excuse my Italian. But the recipes were kept secret and guarded by the chefs of the nobility. Only the well-to-do could afford the expensive underground storage vaults that preserved ice for summer use. The famous Catherine de' Medici of Venice introduced ice cream to the masses in the 1500s using sweetened cream and a recipe more akin to the modern-day product. Florentine confectioners began commercial preparation in the 1560s, producing solidly frozen full cream ice creams. Italian immigrants brought their ice cream making skills to England, and by the 1870s, Italian ice cream vendors were a common sight on the streets of London. In the United States, ice cream was introduced by Quaker colonists who brought their recipes with them to the new country. Confectioners sold ice cream in New York and other cities during colonial times. However, it was still only the wealthy class that could afford that indulgence. Among the famous were Ben Franklin, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson. Here's something interesting. George Washington spent $200 on ice cream in the summer of 1790. Using an inflation calculator... That would be about $5,000 in today's money. I certainly hope he shared some of that ice cream. Ice cream came to the masses in the United States with the invention of the hand-cranked ice cream freezer, invented by Nancy Johnson in the 1840s. But then it had been known for a long time that the freezing point of water could be lowered by adding salt to it. So freezing milk and cream mixtures were much, was much more efficient using a bath of ice and salt water. Let's get to modern day ice cream. Here's what I saw during a recent trip to my local grocery store. Walking up and down the freezer section and probably getting weird looks from fellow shoppers and store detectives, I counted 438 frozen desserts. Yes, you heard me right. 438. Yes, I was counting everything. Ice cream, gelatos, sherbets, sorbets, all varieties and flavors, low-fat, sugar-free, lactose-free, growth hormone-free, organic, treats on a stick, and small versus large containers. But still, 
isn't 438 choices a bit much? How does anybody ever make up their mind? And that wasn't all. Next, I went to the natural food section of the store. There I found 27 more dairy and non-dairy frozen desserts, some made from almond milk, coconut milk, cashews, and soy milk. I won't bore you with all the brands that I saw. If you eat ice cream, you've seen many of the same ones. For this show, rather than talk about several brands, I'm just going to stick with one national brand, Briars, which is probably available in most parts of the country. Briars has products representing most of the descriptions I gave earlier. So I'm going to look at examples of regular ice cream, a frozen dessert, and a non-dairy product. Notice that I said regular ice cream. I use that word for a good reason. In earlier episodes, I've mentioned that the federal government has required that certain processed foods have a standard of identity. They started doing that in the late 1930s, just after the Big Depression, to keep food companies from cheating consumers by substituting cheaper ingredients or diluting more expensive ingredients. So ice cream has a standard of identity defined by our government. You can find that information uh, online. I'll leave a link in the show notes at podbean.com. The documents are not fun reading. They're full of governees and hard to translate, but if you're patient, you can probably figure out the gist of the subject. For ice cream, the government says that a manufacturer of regular or standard ice cream must, one, include at least 10% dairy milk fat, two, use a process with no more than 100% overrun, and three, have container contents weighing no less than four and a half pounds per gallon. Let's look at these one at a time. The requirement of 10% dairy fat means that the fat in the ice cream must come from mammals that lactate, and 10% of the total weight of the finished product must be dairy fat, at least 10%. The manufacturer, for example, could not use crocodile milk if there is such a thing but they could use milk from cows goats sheep water buffaloes camels kangaroos tigers tigers etc that's where the word regular comes in if a package simply says ice cream you can assume that it's a regular product and follows the standard of identity If there's any kind of modifier on the label, like low-fat, sugar-free, lactose-free, etc., then the rules change, or there may not be any rules. If the rules for the standard of identity are not followed, then the product cannot be labeled simply as ice cream. It must have a different descriptor, for example, like frozen dessert. Are you still with me? If not, rewind the program. That was just number one. The standard of identity rule number two has to do with what's called overrun. Have you ever compared the weight of a gallon tub of ice cream versus a gallon bottle of milk? Try it sometime. Say the next uh, next time you're in a grocery store. You should find a world of difference. The milk jug is much heavier. The reason is due to the effect called overrun. When ice cream is churned, air gets incorporated into the mixture, which expands the volume. Financially, it's in the best interest of the manufacturer to incorporate as much air as possible. After all, air is dirt cheap. Actually, cheaper than dirt. The incorporation of air in the ice cream making process is called overrun. When the volume of the ice cream mix doubles, then the overrun is said to be 100% the government limit for regular ice cream. If a manufacturer has an overrun more than 100%, then they can't label the product as ice cream. Looking at overrun from the other side, premium or high quality ice creams will have overruns less than 100%, for example, 60 to 90%, or even lower for super premium brands. Now, overrun is not something you can figure out from the package label. So good luck with that. You'll just have to trust the company and your government. 
The third standard of identity rule has to do with weight, and that's pretty straightforward. In order to be labeled as regular ice cream, one gallon of the product has to weigh at least four and a half pounds. As an aside, note that a gallon of milk weighs about 8.6 pounds. By placing this minimum weight limit on ice cream, the government keeps ice cream makers honest so they don't fill up their products with gassy ingredients. Does this all make sense? I'll come back to standard of identity when I look at the Breyers examples. Now, I've left some details out about the standard of identity because the government also specifically defines what constitutes reduced fat, light, low fat, and non-fat ice creams, but I'm choosing not to go there to keep this podcast from going way too long. And finally, from episode number 18, I delve into one of the staples of human civilization, bread, its history, development, and the modern-day commercial product. You know, I've always loved bread, loved eating it, loved making it in a bread machine nowadays. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, everybody I knew ate bread. We either had toast for breakfast or sandwiches for lunch. Those were the days before low-carb diets. I had never heard of celiac disease, and gluten intolerance was virtually unknown. Gluten wasn't even a word in the common vocabulary back then. In fact, we were encouraged to eat bread, having been told that it was full of vitamins and minerals, and it was good for us. As long as I can remember, I always heard the phrase staff of life when referring to bread. As a kid, I conjured up an image of some biblical figure like Moses holding up a huge staff. Not only could he smite people with it, but it was also used to magically produce bread or manna for the starving people of Israel. Little did I know at that time that the phrase staff of life was just an idiom first recorded in the English language in the 17th century, the early part of the 17th century. According to Webster, An idiom is an expression that can't be understood from the meanings of the separate words, but has a meaning all of its own. Other idioms, like open a can of worms or pulling your leg, are not to be taken literally. The phrase staff alive has had a consistent meaning throughout the long history of the English language and simply refers to a staple food, an important sustaining food for consumption. Throughout recorded human history, the grains that are used to make bread have been considered to be an essential part of the human diet. Like millions of other kids in the 1950s, my favorite bread was Wonder Bread, a soft, squishy bread that seemed to melt in your mouth. Its plastic wrapper was eye-catching with the brightly colored balloons all over it. Is that an old commercial from 1952 that I hear? Here's how to help build strong bodies eight ways. Eat Wonder Bread. You want to go bigger and stronger, don't you? Golly, sure. Okay. A sandwich daily and two slices of Wonder Bread every meal give you eight elements you need. As much muscle-building protein as roast beef, as much calcium for bones and teeth as cottage cheese, as much phosphorus for cell metabolism as this egg, as much iron for red blood as three lamb chops, as much vitamin B1 for appetite as fried liver, as much vitamin B2 for growth as this much cheese, as much niacin for mental health as six sardines, as much energy as two glasses of milk. That's why you can help yourself grow bigger and stronger eight ways with Wonder Bread. I mean grow bigger and stronger eight ways. So be sure to eat Wonder Bread. Get Wonder Bread fresh at your grocer's today. The Taggart Baking Company of Indianapolis, Indiana, first produced Wonder Bread in 1921. The brand name was coined by Elmer Klein, the vice president of merchandising development. The legend goes that Elmer attended a balloon race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He was enthralled with wonder at the sight of the colored balloons. Four years later, the company was purchased 
by Continental Baking, which began to market Wonder Bread nationally. They introduced such innovations as sliced bread in the 1930s and was one of the first companies to add vitamins and minerals to bread in the 1940s. More about that later. Also, celebrities were associated with Wonder Bread, such as two of my favorites, the puppet Howdy Doody and the human Buffalo Bob Smith. In the ads, they claim that Wonder Bread builds strong bodies eight ways. By the 1960s, the slogan was, helps build strong bodies 12 ways, making the bread sound really healthy. That was one of the great ruses of the processed food industry in the 20th century, and man, did we fall for it. In 1995, Continental Baking was taken over by Interstate Bakeries, which was later renamed as Hostess Brands. Over the next 17 years, the Hostess Company went through a number of ups and downs until finally declaring bankruptcy in 2012. In 2013, the Flowers Foods Company took over the Hostess Brands and revived Wonder Bread, as well as returning Twinkie snack cakes to the desperate masses. In researching this episode, I was surprised to discover that my local grocery store, a national chain, does not carry Wonder Bread. So, apparently, it hasn't made a complete comeback yet. I'll return to Wonder Bread later in the show uh, when I talk about bread ingredients. What are the essential ingredients for just making bread? A basic recipe would include flour, water, salt, and yeast, or a sourdough starter. That's it. Very basic. But you would have a hard time trying to find, or I should say trying to buy, a loaf of bread with just those ingredients in it. Why? That turns out to be a complicated question, and the answer is really the gist of this episode. Even when I make bread at home, I probably use twice that number of ingredients. Part of the answer lies in our modern preferences for bread. Another part concerns the industrialization of bread and how manufacturers need to make breads that are consistent from one bag to another and will hold up during the manufacturing process, the transporting, and while sitting on grocery store shelves. Let's start with preferences. That's an interesting and ironic story. For most of recorded human history, breads were made from flours generated from coarse grinds of grains like wheat, barley, rye, and others. The breads were dark, not white, but they did have a tendency to acquire mold and fungus, giving rise to several diseases, and the lifetimes were short due to rancidity. Over time, people developed a preference for white bread, which held up better over time, was more refined, not coarse, and produced a desirable soft texture. But white wheat flour was expensive to produce. Here's why. What makes regular wheat flour, or as we call it today, whole wheat, what makes it coarse and dark are the parts of the wheat berry, which is the seed, known as the germ, which is the oily part, and the bran, which is the fibrous part. To remove those parts requires time, labor, and machinery. What's left after those parts are removed is what's called the endosperm. That's the starchy part. After grinding or milling the endosperm, it's a matter of sifting, or in the old days it was called bolting, to remove the gritty particles to give a uniform fine flour which had a slight yellow color. Even the Romans sifted wheat into seven grades of flour using cloth made from woven horse hair. As particles got sifted out, the flour became wider and finer. Storing the flour for a period of time naturally aged and lightened it. In the olden days, it took three tradesmen to make white bread. There was the miller, the grinder, the bolter, who was the sifter, and the baker. Of course, with all those requirements, white flour was more expensive, so only the rich could afford it. That means everybody else, not so well off, desired bread made from white flour. It was a status symbol. As early as the 13th century in England, 
King Henry III attempted to standardize bread making so people would know what they were getting when they paid for bread. The royal edict was called the Assize of Bread and Ale and held firm until the early 1800s. According to the book, The Dark History of Food Fraud by B. Wilson, the Assize regulated the weight, price, and composition of bread. It listed seven different kinds of loaves. The best of the best was wastel bread. It was white and eaten by the rich. Next came cocket bread, similar to wastel, but made with an inferior flour. Simnel bread was a rich, cake-like flour also eaten by the rich. The stuff eaten by the masses was what we know today as whole wheat bread. There were several other categories for the really poor. White bread was so prized that many bakers doctored cheap flour so it would mimic the more expensive white bread. A white mineral called alum, composed of aluminum sulfate and other salts, was added to the cheap flour. Aluminum is not a body-friendly element, and alum has properties of being astringent, that means it causes binding or puckering, and emetic, which means it can cause vomiting. So the unethical bakers had to be pretty careful in using it. But the alum would turn second-rate white flour, which made grayish bread, into a light white porous loaf that could be sold at a lower price than the more expensive white bread. In 1758, the British government banned the use of alum, but it was still in common use in the mid-1800s, as it was difficult to detect as an adulterant. Now, let's advance in time to the 20th century. Following the industrial and chemical revolutions, the old ways of making white bread were superseded by modern machines with rolling mills that could grind wheat berries to a fine powder and simultaneously remove the wheat germ that contributed color. Time-intensive sifting or bolting were no longer needed, but there was still a problem with color. Even without the germ, most varieties of wheat flour still had a slight yellow color. How to make cheap and consistent white flour so mills could sell tons of it to commercial bakeries? Aging the flour in an oxygen atmosphere could whiten it, but that process took months. In the early 1900s, chemical bleaching agents or oxidizers were introduced. Today, there are a handful of chemicals that turn flour pristine white and also improve the bread-making process. Some of these are azodicarbonamide, or, or ADA for short, ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C, chlorine, chlorine dioxide, benzoyl peroxide, and calcium peroxide. Some important notes here. A few of these chemicals are toxic, but since they are considered processing aids, they don't have to be listed on the ingredients label. Most of the chemicals are volatile, so they are not supposed to wind up in the finished products. But you never know. Accidents do happen. All bleaching agents have been banned in the United Kingdom. Several nations, including the European, European Union, Canada, and China, have banned the use of benzoyl peroxide and other peroxides as processing aids because of health concerns. Let's sum up. So, in the early part of the 20th century, the public, rich and poor alike, got access to a cheap and plentiful, plentiful supply of white bread. Everybody's happy, right? No. Uh, a new twist to the story occurs. Early in the 20th century, biochemists and doctors discovered an alarming link between food and several horrible diseases, namely pellagra and beriberi. These diseases turned out to be diet-related. The symptoms of pellagra included inflamed skin, diarrhea, dementia, and sores in the mouth. Areas of the skin exposed to either sunlight or friction were typically affected first. Over time, affected skin uh, became darker, stiff, began to peel or bleed. The symptoms of beriberi included weight loss, emotional disturbances, impaired sensory perception, 
weakness and pain in the limbs, and periods of irregular heart rate. The disease cause turned out to be vitamin deficiencies in the food supply. With the discovery of vitamins and their role in human health in the early 20th century, the mystery of those diseases was solved. Pellagra was due to a deficiency in vitamin B3, known as niacin, while beriberi was due to a deficiency in vitamin B1, known as thiamine. Food scientists put two and two together and figured out that due to the processing of white flour and white rice, the B vitamins got removed along with a bunch of other nutrients. So here is truly one of the great ironies and stupidities of human existence. People, by virtue of their personal preferences, ate processed foods that caused vitamin deficiencies leading to disease. Now, if humans were really a sensible species and interested in their personal well-being, you would think that everyone would agree that eating white bread made from white flour was bad for health and would be banned, or at least denounced. People could just go back to eating the darker, unbleached, whole grain bread with its full complement of vitamins, minerals, fiber, and other goodies. Problem solved. But no, we all know what happened. The U.S. and British governments in the 1940s set up programs to force milling companies to enrich the white flour. That is, add back into the flour synthetic vitamins to make up for the losses due to refining. That word enrich is ironic in itself. It means to make rich. It's interesting that this landmark decision was made early in World War II. At that time, the U.S. Army declared that it would only buy enriched flour. So baking companies doing business with the government had to start enriching white flour. Nowadays, the FDA mandates that white flour be enriched with thiamine, vitamin B1, riboflavin, vitamin B2, niacin, vitamin B3, and reduced iron. And since 1996, folic acid or folate has been added to flour. Why is that? Folate deficiency in women can lead to neural tube defects, which represent one of the most prevalent groups of birth defects. But folate addition to bread is not enrichment, but falls in the category of fortification. It's a micronutrient added to food to increase its content to levels greater than are normally found in that food. Another example of fortification would be calcium added to milk. Hey, food eaters, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed traveling back in time with me to reminisce about the early days of the podcast. If you like some of the excerpts I played, you may want to go back and look up the original episodes to get the full programs. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little bit more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star reading at the iTunes store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And of course, you can always listen to the podcast using your smartphone or tablet or by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. If you think your family, friends, coworkers, or acquaintances might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Till later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants not manufacturing plants. The outro music is a clip from Work is Work, composed by Kevin McLeod.